Netflix, eBay, Twitter, PayPal, and Uber. These huge household name businesses all started out using traditional monolithic architectures. But as these organizations grew, they began to realize that using monoliths would no longer be viable for their operational needs. Thus, they turned to microservices, taking advantage of how this modern architecture can scale with rapid growth, constantly changing consumer demands and unpredictable business environments. Today, more companies are beginning to migrate or have migrated to a microservices-based architecture, turning what was initially an internet buzzword into the architecture of the modern digital world. And as more and more organizations begin adopting a microservice architecture, adopters are beginning to realize the agility, productivity, and the business value they can derive from microservices, as well as the challenges that come with their implementation. Greetings, Internet. My name is Kevin Montalvo. On today's round of cocktails, we discuss microservices, how enterprises can better understand the complexities of their design, talk about their benefits, as well as what to consider when implementing this type of architecture. Joining us today all the way from Australia is StoreCloud CEO and founder and Cocktails co-host David Brown. Hi, David. G'day, Kevin. And today's guest is a cloud architect an engineering manager and the technical team lead of Australian fintech company Zip. He has authored books on microservices orchestration and service mesh, microservices with Azure by Pact, Kubernetes succinctly, and Istio succinctly. Sharing with us his knowledge and experience on microservices, also from Sydney, Australia, Rahul Rai. Good day, Rahul. Good to have you on. Thank you. All right. How have microservices changed the way we do application development and integration? Uh, so I'll present a slightly lengthy answer. So I'll begin with the development aspect of microservices first. So a microservice typically has three building blocks code, which is the application binaries uh, that developers write, the state, uh, which is where the data used by your application is stored, and the configuration using which you uh, deploy and update the application and the state. Now you need to deploy, scale, and update each of these three components independently. And how you do that is uh, critical for the scalability and maintainability of the system. Now, this can be a challenging problem to solve. And the choice of technology used to host each of the building blocks plays an important role in addressing this complexity. For example, if the code is developed using .NET Core uh, in the form of a web API, and the state is stored in an external um, in Azure SQL database, say, then the configuration that you write or the scripts uh, for that matter, uh, for upgrading and scaling these services, will have to handle compute, storage, and network capabilities on both of these platforms simultaneously. Uh, this is not so much of a big problem to solve now, because modern microservices platforms such as Kubernetes offer a possible solution by co-locating state and code together for the ease of uh, management, which simplifies this problem to a great extent. Also, with the help of Kubernetes operators, for example, AWS service operator, and Azure also has a counterpart, which is called Azure service operator, you can deploy the state uh, to a PaaS service. Uh, so you can still host your data in, say, Azure SQL database or in terms of in AWS land, say, DynamoDB, uh, but still deploy your applications to Kubernetes but manage both of them using a single configuration using these operators, which help keep these configurations very simple. Now, 
Moving on to the integration aspect of microservices, I would just like to highlight a few common integration models and uh, uh, how these models can help uh, bind microservices together. So one of the most common ones, uh, not the most common, but uh, one of the newer ones uh, that's a, sort of a burning topic right now are composite user interfaces or micro frontends. So with this model, uh, when you build your microservices, you ship your uh, user interface along with it. And uh, uh, there could be an integration team uh, that is involved that would uh, plug all of these uh, UI bits together. And uh, some of the typical websites that uh, implement this model are Facebook and Amazon e-commerce websites. Now, composite frontends are not a viable uh, solution for uh, clients, rich clients, such as mobile applications, where people need to have very niche skills in order to build such user interfaces. So for such uh, applications, a thin backend, uh, most typically known as a backend for frontend BFF is built. And it team solely focuses on building a rich client. And for any data, they query this uh, backend interface in order to serve the user interface. Uh, another model of uh, integrating microservices, which is the most common one, is synchronous communication. Uh, so you use REST to transfer JSON data over HTTP. Now, uh, REST can also help in uh, service discovery by using hypermedia as the engine of application state. It's also called HADES. Uh, I think that's how it is pronounced. Uh, so it's a component of REST which models relationships between resources by using links. So once the client queries the entry point of the service, it can use the links it receives to navigate to other microservices. Um, another common integration pattern is asynchronous communication using services such as SQS or Azure Service Bus Rebat MQ uh, that has the benefit of uh, truly decoupling microservices from each other. And since the communication is carried out by a broker, individual services need not be aware of the location of the receiver of the request. And uh, this also gives individual services the ability to scale independently and recover and respond to messages in case of failure. However, uh, this communication pattern lacks the feature of immediate feedback and is slower than synchronous communication format. Uh, the last uh, integration model that I would like to point out is data replication. So in this model, you share data uh, between microservices by uh, copying, uh, by uh, transforming the data that is available on a database onto another replica, which is used by another microservice. And uh, such replication process can be triggered in batches or on certain events of the system, but the same data can be used by different services to carry out their own uh, responsibility. But you raise a lot of points there, Rahul. Uh, I just want to ask a couple of questions. Um, just on that last point, you said that last integration pattern is to uh, replicate the database, transform it and, and create a new database for uh, which has the content required by different microservices. Now, we know in a microservices world, we should have a, uh, a unique database for each microservice, right? So you're saying that instead of uh, making a call to a separate microservice for the data it doesn't have, is that you'd replicate the data from that other database, uh, mm -hmm. transform it to whatever format that other microservice needs. Is mm -hmm. that is that right? Uh, the moment you try to couple microservices at any particular layer, uh, they don't stay microservices anymore. Because then what would happen is that uh, you can't safely manage the data that is uh, stored persisted by the microservice, which 
is typically called as state. And uh, you can expect the state to be consistent. So let's say if uh, two microservices are sharing the same state, or let's go even granular, let's say they're sharing the data that's written in a particular table. Now, you can't at any point of time safely modify any records from this table or uh, dictate a schema of this table from any particular service because you've bound the services together. Uh, so uh, then you typically, you can't call these services microservices essentially because uh, they break the basic tenets of microservices, which is that services can be independently built, deployed and version uh, because now they can't, uh, you can't do that with these uh, services. So in such cases, it's always a better choice to uh, replicate the data. So you don't have to actually copy data from one database to another uh, by running heavy patch operations or SSIS jobs or uh, any other uh, transformation uh, service as such. You can stream data to other services uh, through events and through that uh, another replica of the database can be, uh, can be hydrated and that's what can be used by other services. So I'm guessing that's only applicable in a uh, read-only situation. Like you're saying, that you're going to get conflicts mm -hmm. if you have yes. uh, two microservices connected to the same database and updating the data, right? So mm -hmm. it, in that particular use case, I'm guessing mm -hmm. that uh, the microservice which is getting that stream of data or the replicated mm -hmm. database is only reading the data, right? So in a microservices world, a microservice is uh, the source of truth for the domain that it is working on. So, uh, which essentially means that any other service can only rely on this data for uh, uh, reading purposes. Uh, it can't actually write data and become the source of truth itself. Mm. So, uh, yes, that is uh, you know, the key issue. Uh, so, there was one other point you made as was regarding the uh, um, I think you called it the component front-end model uh, for front-end application design. And you said it wasn't mm -hmm. applicable to the rich clients like mobile applications. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit more about how that's evolved? So what have we evolved from to get to that point and how does it differ? Uh, so from the composite user interface to the back-end for front-end, is that what Yes, that's what I was referring to, yes. Right. Uh, so typically, I mean, this is what I've seen happening most of the time that uh, uh, generally organizations, how they staff their teams is that uh, they would build capabilities uh, within their organization. So for example, there will be a team that is that specializes in serving and databases. Uh, there would be another team that specializes on the user interfaces and then uh, a bunch of programmers that bridge this gap between uh, the user interface and the databases. Now, if you form guilds like these, then what would happen is that uh, in any request that needs to be satisfied, for example, if you need to add a new uh, a front end to your application and uh, it requires some middleware processing and then some uh, data to be served through the database, you need to go through all of these three teams and the communication is generally very slow. Uh, and uh, in such organizations where teams are structured like this, it is very hard to realize the concept of microservices because uh, microservices and domain-driven design actually go hand in hand. Wherein you need to structure your teams that have uh, each of the capability that you require. So some members who specialize in the user interface, some who specialize in 
building the middleware, for example, web APIs or uh, any other processing uh, system that you require in between, and then the database. Uh, and you put them together so that whenever you have a requirement, the, there is no gap in communication between these team members. Now, uh, so this uh, such a team structure can work very efficiently when you have when you also make the user interface a microservice. So your user interface is not a monolith in itself, uh, but rather the team can work together and deliver the user interface along with uh, the entire functionality that they're shipping. Uh, so this sounds all right as in uh, it's uh, very easy to realize this uh, with frameworks like angular or libraries like react which give you this ability to build uh, user interfaces like this but then when it comes to mobile application development uh, it's very hard to build mobile apps that are segregated like this uh, of course you can uh, use frameworks like ionic or react native to still somehow realize the uh, composite user interface in mobile applications yeah so when we are talking about mobile applications uh, that are built natively so if you're using uh, building your uh, uh, android apps using java or uh, i'm not very good with the mobile app dev but using native uh, language uh, features then Obviously, you can't build composite uh, user interfaces there because people need to have very niche skills to develop such app. So there you can still build your mobile apps as a monolith, as in people who specialize in building such applications uh, build that UI for you. But then uh, for serving data, you rely on uh, on a PFF layer. Uh, it doesn't always need to be REST enabled, as in uh, there are so many other technologies available now. For example, GraphQL is one of them. So you build a very thin library that sits behind these mobile applications and uh, developers can talk to, uh, can serve their uh, data requirements by talking to this thin service library that sits behind the scene. And then everything can be, uh, the rest of the services can be microservices uh, that sit behind the BFF or this thin service. Understood, thanks. All right, I want to dig into this a little deeper. In our last podcast episode, we talked about taking a more modular approach rather than a monolithic one, uh, which is the better way for organizations to embark on their digital transformation journeys. Do you think that this modular approach is the way forward as well? Uh, so before we want to dismiss monolith, uh, I would uh, just like to say that microservices are not a cure-all. So in fact, in most of the cases, monoliths are a better design choice. And some monoliths such as single process or modular monoliths have a whole lot of advantages as well. Uh, it is much simpler to de uh, deploy a monolith and uh, it's much easier to avoid many of the pitfalls associated with distributed systems such as transactions and latency with monoliths. And uh, monoliths can result in much simpler developer workflows, uh, monitoring, troubleshooting, and uh, other activities like end-to-end -end testing as well. And in fact, many organization in many organizations, monoliths have a bad reputation only because the application concerns are poorly segregated, which makes it hard to decouple parts of the application and for developers to deploy them independently. Now, that being said, as monolith grows, it starts yielding diminishing returns. And one of the biggest advantages of microservices is isolation. So isolation between services makes adoption of uh, continuous delivery very simple and uh, this allows you to safely deploy applications and roll out changes and revert deployments in case of failure 
since services can be individually versioned and deployed, uh, you can achieve significant savings in the deployment and testing of microservices, which is not the case with Monolith. So you made an interesting point there. You said, look, uh, Monolith is a very, still a very valid um, design uh, in, in microservices has its place, but Monolith still very much has its place. So where do you see the distinction? When to, when choose, when to choose a monolithic application design, when to choose a microservice model? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that uh, I generally would like call out is uh, if the teams are very small and the application concerns are not massive, for example, if you're building a simple, let's say a web application, or even for that matter, in a small e-commerce store, you shouldn't start with uh, building services for each and every concern. And more so if your team is very small, then don't start with uh, microservices because the developers would be better off focusing their uh, time and attention on a single code base and uh, deploying it together uh, than focusing on a ton of services and uh, managing them. So start with a monolith. Uh, of course, design it uh, nicely so that uh, things are uh, nicely segregated. And when the need comes, so as monolith starts growing and you see that uh, it has started uh, addressing a host of concerns, then you start splitting out uh, the modules that it is made up of. Uh, so think of it like Lego blocks. You start by uh, putting all of these blocks together and still build a single structure uh, from it. But uh, when the time comes, you can take a set of blocks and uh, deploy it independently from everything else. And as the team grows and as the business concerns grow, uh, start segregating them. But yeah, don't uh, just jump into this uh, with this uh, idea that uh, uh, you will start off with microservices, even when the domain boundaries are not very clear and you don't know uh, what you are going to. So microservices do give you this uh, benefit, benefit of uh, experimenting with something. And if it doesn't work out, you can throw it away, but so do more or less uh, till the time they are uh, small enough to uh, experiment and uh, modify as the time evolves. I think there's some good advice there. I mean, I think that uh, if if the application design uh, is done well from the outset, the monolithic design is, is, is modular so that it can be broken down into independent services in the future, uh, you know, it's going to make your life a lot easier if, if you do ever want to evolve that code base into a microservices. Uh, we're seeing a lot of projects uh, taking that approach where the monolith has become too unwieldy, too un unmanageable, and they want to break it down in independent services. Uh, and so we uh, can provide tool sets to facilitate that. But you also make some valid points to uh, say that, look, if you don't have the capabilities, if you've got it working with a small team, and it, it's not just the uh, development team, the DevOps team as well, maybe microservices you know, is not you're not ready for it yet. And that uh, building a, a monolithic based application is going to be easier to maintain that code base, easier to deploy. Uh, just give it some architectural considerations where it can be broken down into independent services in the future. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, so um, since we're on the topic of, you know, talking about microservices and their complexities, microservices are deployed in containers, right? So with a microservices based application, you can end up managing a lot of containers. Uh, how do container orchestration engines such as Kubernetes, AWS, ECS, and Docker Swarm help with managing these uh, 
container-based microservices? Uh, so in the last uh, answer that I presented, I spoke about isolation. So I just want to build up on that idea. So ideally, you want to run each microservice instance in isolation. Uh, isolation ensures that issues in one microservice doesn't affect the other. For example, one of the microservices gobbles up all the CPU and then the rest of the services on the host staff. And uh, virtualization is one of the ways to create uh, isolated execution environments on ex uh, existing hardware. But the typical virtualization techniques can be quite heavy uh, if you're talking about uh, virtualization system, uh, techniques like Hyper-V. So they can be quite heavy uh, when you consider the size of the microservices that you deploy on them. Uh, so containers, on the other hand, provide a much more lightweight way to provision isolated execution environments for services. Uh, and uh, they're also much faster to spin up and uh, they are much more cost effective for many architectures. So on a single VM, there is just a handful of uh, Hyper-V instances that you can uh, spin up because they own each of them come up, uh, come with their own uh, copy of operating systems and rest of the networking capability. But containers are you can spin up hundreds or even thousands of containers on it if the VM is big enough. Uh, so after you begin playing around with uh, containers, you will also realize that uh, you need something to allow you to manage these containers across a lot of underlying machines. And container orchestration platform like Kubernetes do exactly that. Uh, that is, allow you to distribute container instances in such a way so that it can uh, provide you the robustness and uh, throughput as per the, the demands of the service. It ensures that uh, the underlying machines are uh, used to their fullest capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, so there isn't much of a, a much wastage with respect to the CPU or the memory. But uh, even with uh, Kubernetes and containers, for that matter, my advice still uh, remains the same. That don't feel the need to rush to adopt Kubernetes or even containers for that matter. So even though they offer significant advantage over more traditional deployment techniques, but it is very difficult to justify it if you have only a few services uh, to host. And after the overhead of uh, managing deployment becomes begins to uh, become a significant headache, start considering containerization of your services and the use of Kubernetes. But even if you end up uh, using Kubernetes, uh, just make sure that uh, someone else is running the Kubernetes cluster for you. Uh, for that, you sh should use a managed service on a public cloud provider because running your own Kubernetes cluster can be a significant amount of work. Rahul, what is a service mesh and how does it facilitate microservices? So service mesh provides a policy-based and the services first network that addresses East-West, which is the service-to-service networking concerns. And it takes care of uh, concerns like security, resiliency, observability, uh, so that services can communicate with each other while offloading all of these network-related concerns to the platform, which is the service mesh. I think at uh, this point in time, Rahul, some people might be sound thinking that sounds an awful lot like a, an API gateway. The service, the concept of service discovery and uh, routing requests to the correct uh, microservice. Whereas Kubernetes is saying, okay, I, you have an order service and 
we need to spin up more instances of that order service and I know where where we can deploy those and if mm -hmm. one uh, uh, container goes down I can spin up another one mm -hmm. now we understand that uh, the service mesh is more about that east-west communication of service discovery so that the uh, shopping cart service knows where the order service exists and how to communicate with it mm -hmm. uh, but how does that differ from the functionality of an API gateway uh, that's a very good point, actually. And uh, I've heard of this question from uh, quite a few people, but uh, how I go about explaining it is that uh, application uh, gateways generally uh, sit in front of your uh, application. So an application can be made up of multiple services. Uh, for example, if uh, uh, take, for instance, Amazon website. Now, Amazon website has... Uh, I don't know how many, but uh, I'm sure to the tune of hundreds uh, services uh, sitting behind it, uh, which power this experience. Uh, so when we are talking about uh, service mesh, as I said, that uh, they are there to mostly address east-west networking concerns. So how each of these individual services that are sitting behind the UI, uh, how they communicate with each other and how uh, they can maintain common concerns, uh, for example, security, resiliency, and all those good things in a very consistent manner. API Gateway actually uh, sits in front of services, so it handles north-south traffic, so which is uh, between one application and the other. So uh, you have this uh, common gateways that uh, simply transfers all over after some transformation to an application and the application then uses its uh, services in order to return a response via the gateways. So think of gateway as something sitting at your uh, domain boundary, but within your domain, you have a bunch of services that are talking to each other. So both of these are complementary to each other because the application gateway doesn't need to sit in front of each and every service of your uh, uh, application stack. It just is to manage the boundary of your domain. So uh, I've seen implementations where application gateway is implemented, uh, is also installed inside Kubernetes, but only used for establishing the domain boundary. So uh, your domain has a bunch of services which use service mesh to talk to each other, but then any calls that go out of the domain or gets uh, or are uh, served through the services inside the domain come via API gateway. Yeah, so that's what the segregation is between the two. Great, thanks for that. So you're an experienced cloud architect. What problems do you often encounter when an enterprise tries to implement microservices in their organization? Mm -hmm. uh, so the, if you talk about the most common challenge that I see, mm -hmm. uh, I would like to go back to the point that I made earlier. So uh, which is that, uh, I see that many organizations are not organized for building microservices. And in order to uh, put some facts around it, uh, I would like to talk about Conway's law. So Conway's law states that any organization that designs a system will produce a design whose structure is a copy of organization's communication structure. But uh, many people think that uh, organization's communication structure in Conway's law represents the organization hierarchy. However, it rather represents how the various teams and organization communicate with each other. For example, an e-commerce company might have a product team and an invoicing team. 
And any application that is designed by, by this application will have a product module and an invoicing module that will communicate with each other through a common interface. Now, I have seen massive architecture representations of such organizations which are very complex and impossible to maintain. And using this, uh, the Conway's law in conjunction with the principles of domain-driven design can actually help an organization enhance agility and design scalable and maintainable solutions. For example, in an e-commerce company, teams may be structured around domain components rather than application layer that, that they specialize in. Uh, for example, user interface, business logic, and database. This is not how teams should be structured. Uh, you can have clearly uh, structured domains, and uh, you set up teams across uh, these domains. And then the teams won't need to interact with each other too frequently. Also, the interface between teams would not be too complex and rigid. <clears throat> and uh, teams which are segregated by domain uh, such team layouts are uh, um, very commonly employed by successful organizations that have implemented microservices, which all of us emulate, for example, Amazon and Netflix, for instance. Each team within uh, such organization are uh, responsible for uh, creating and maintaining part of the domain. They are not uh, structured around a specialization as such. Uh, so the concept of uh, domain-driven design brings me to another point that I would like to make here. In most of the young organizations or organizations that are trying to tackle a new problem, you would find that no one fully understands the domains of microservices that they want to build. Now, uh, without such understanding, it is a very costly uh, mistake to make, as making the wrong choice uh, with segregating the domains might lead to solving some of the most complex problems of distributed computing in the future. For example, distributed transactions, data consistency, and latency. So I recommend that organization take some time to discover the domain using tools such as even storming workshops or uh, domain discovery workshops before embarking on the journey to build microservices. Raul, you talk about uh, domain-driven design and ha having teams working on the microservice which are responsible for that domain. And that makes you know, a whole lot of sense. But there are going to be other uh, teams from other domains which are going to be relying on the services of mm -hmm. someone else's team. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you recommend in terms of uh, a team responsible for a domain liaising with the stakeholders which are going to be consuming my service? Yes. Uh so that's exactly a valid thing and uh, something that I spoke about. Uh, that uh, when you segregate teams by domain, then you reduce the uh, communication that needs to happen between these teams. So for example, if let's say I, as a person, I'm working on the user interface and you are working on the backend, uh, in order to deliver any feature uh, and yeah, this is a very poor example, but let's say if we are uh, teams on our own, uh, then in order to get a single feature across, there would need to be a lot more communication uh, that needs to happen between you and me than if we were part of the same team. So, uh, so you reduce this uh, organization chit chats that go on by a, a significant margin if you structure the teams that don't need to talk to each other that often. 
Now, of course, when teams rely on each other for uh, certain data, then they can establish contracts and satisfy those contracts rather than you know always having to go back and forth and uh, have a very fluid uh, contracts established between them. By contracts, you you mean API contracts? Uh, so the contracts can be for a lot of things. So not just API contracts. So as in, uh, they can also include things like uh, the mode of communication or the escalation hierarchy, uh, so things like that, the organization structure as well. So uh, API contracts can only serve uh, data to and from a microservice, but then uh, how would you go about monitoring and how would you go about uh, escalating to the right set of people when problems occur? So they are also contracts uh, which need to be established. Great stuff. All right, Rahul Rai, thank you very much for being with us. Please feel free to invite our listeners to view or read your work. Where can they find you, Rahul? Uh, so I blog very frequently at uh, my website. Uh, it's uh, URL is thecloudblog.net. Uh, so you can find me there and all, my, all the links to my socials and my email is available over there. So people can use those links. All right. Thanks, Rahul. David, thanks for joining us as well. You can listen to our previous episodes, which are available for streaming or download on your favorite podcast platforms. Also visit our website at www.torocloud.com for our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Toro Cloud. Thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo, David Brown, and Rahul Rai for Coding Over Cocktails.